Okay, so welcome to the Truth of Passion Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. TTP is the place to be. VJ, how are you today? Hey, going well, going well. Um, we're just awaiting our guests to call in. Let's yeah, awaiting see. our guests in a yeah. bit. But but I understand uh, you were just uh, at poetry camp. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it's been fun. The poetry side of New York. Um, yeah. So fresh out of that and uh, and feeling good. Hopefully you generated some new writing. You're feeling kind of good. Um, and you got a birthday coming up. Yeah, I'll be turning 44. Ah, yes. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, the 4-4, four, four, the, the palindromic 4-4. Uh, four, four. Uh, I, like, I like that. Two H's upside down. Um, really cool. What about, what, what, if you could characterize your summer thus thus far it's 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 more a little more than half over what, what, what do you think you would characterize the summer as um, either in a word or, or or a feeling or a statement for this summer in particular yeah interesting interesting um i don't know i guess like it's been a very uh robust summer robust robust I think nice. is a good word to describe yeah, it yeah yeah yeah. yeah, it seemed a lot of experiences that you've had, some, you know, even outside of the city, too. Whereas previous summers, I don't think no, many of us were traveling, uh, traveling much. A um, couple times, yeah, well, you were in Colorado, um, just upstate, too. I was actually recently in Colorado to, uh, last week um, doing, doing a bit of a hike. Yeah. And I understand our guest today is also uh, from Colorado. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I just plug in, plug him in. The phone seems to be getting some trouble. So um, mm-hmm. let me see if I can plug into the, uh, let's see. You're uh, through WhatsApp? No, uh, yeah, maybe through WhatsApp, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I believe today's focus is going to be a bit on transpersonal uh, psychology, yeah. correct? yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've been doing a lot of hiking lately, and, and I'm interested uh, if uh, the gentleman we're, we're going to about to talk to, uh, what his kind of, you know, mindfulness and some spiritual practices are himself, but also his connection to transpersonal um, psychology, uh, whether hiking or uh, biking, walking, um, and any of those that have led to maybe some awakenings that he's had uh, in, in, uh, in day-to-day in his life. Yeah, so let me just get, let me see if I can plug him in by number. Um, plug him in by number? By phone number. Mm-hmm. You want to use uh, my device? Yeah, because my mine, unfortunately, I don't have the dongle. We had a so, fun, we had a running joke last time that uh, we were unable to connect with him where we were going to communicate with him telepathically yeah, or, or some yeah. sort of thing. Um but we will hear his voice today. He is standing by on the line, I do believe. Okay. So we're ready um, to hear um, from Dr. Ian, I believe. Yeah, Dr. Ian Vikram Sekra. Let's see if we can get him online. Yeah. Uh, let me see if this works. Um, let's see. Is this... Um, Hello? Let's see. Let's see if the volume is up. Um, what's the volume percent? Should be all on volume. Yeah. Check the. Um, there you go. 
I don't know if you need Bluetooth oh, like it's working now. in real-time call. You hear through the speaker. Right? I hear the ring-a-ding-ding, yeah. ring-a-ding-ding-ding. Hello? Ding. Hello, Dr. Ian. Hi, how are you, VJ? Hi, good, good. Welcome to the Truth to Power show. Welcome, Wonderful. Welcome. Yes, live and, and alive. We are uh, joined by Scott, uh, Scott Raven, co-host here today. It's nice to have you here, Dr. Ian. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Nice to talk with you this morning. Yeah. So let me just give a little bit of your, about your experience for the listeners to situate you. I'll give a little bit of your bio. Um, you know, Dr. Ian loves researching, experiencing, and writing about anything related to mind-body phenomena. So we'll be talking a lot about that. Uh, he is well, most well-known for his work in hypnosis and empathy. And also how Tibetan arc approaches to the study of mind are similar to ideas and practices in hypnosis research. Um, he developed, he's developed uh, research and theory involving biofeedback, empathy, meditation, near-death experiences, psychophysiology, shamanism, spirituality, and transpersonal experiences, uh, author of over 150 articles, book chapters, and scientific presentations on these subjects. Uh, his research and writings have won a number of awards, including early career um, awards, uh, and from the American Psychological Association, the American Society for Clinical Hypnosis, and Clark Hall Award for Scientific Investigation of Hypnosis. So it seems like a lot of focus on hypnosis, and we can talk a little bit about that, and we can go up more broadly into the transpersonal. Uh, if we could give like a definition, a working definition for the audience, most of them are probably familiar a little bit with it, but how you're inroad into that, into hypnosis, uh, into the transpersonal, how hypnosis might be a bridge into the transpersonal, rather. Oh, certainly, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I feel like... Uh, my definition may even have a little to do with uh, uh, the name of your show, you know, talking uh, truth to power, uh, because uh, one of the most astonishing uh, aspects of uh, transpersonal psychology and counseling is that uh, everybody has uh, their own power, you know, and that uh, if we can really come to realize uh, the fullness of the power that uh, everyone has innately, uh, we have so much power uh, in our own lives that we can utilize and that we can use collectively to do beautiful things to change our world. Uh, but this, the simple definition that I think of uh, for transpersonal and why I'm interested in hypnosis, uh, meditation, and so many other uh, indigenous wisdom uh, traditions um, is that uh, I think what being transpersonal means is simply to be um, devoted to discovering for uh, each person, you know, what are their uh, highest sources of wisdom and love within them and uh, how they can utilize them to achieve uh, the best life possible for ourselves and uh, for the people we're living with. I think it, Transpersonal really has to do with that. That word means sort of going beyond our expectations of the self and going beyond uh, transcending our, our the personal and transcending the political, transcending anything uh, that really seems to be a limitation on human functioning. And that, in general, um, as a kind of spiritual quest, you know, to really look at what are our highest sources of wisdom and love. And uh, there are so many uh, methods that people have invented over, the, you know, really the 
thousands of years that human beings have been obsessed with this question in uh, religious, spiritual, philosophical, and psychological ways. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I uh, started off doing uh, scientifically was with hypnosis, since that is actually the transpersonal uh, methodology that has the largest research history, uh, at least in terms of uh, what we define as research in, uh, I guess, uh, American, uh, European psychologies, but really the indigenous uh, traditions of the world, spiritual and otherwise, you know, such as uh, ayahuasqueros or whether we're thinking about, uh, you know, in the Himalayas of many, many different uh, traditions and methodologies of investigating the nature of self and the illusory nature of uh, reality that we seem to experience in uh, different forms of Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, so many different traditions of uh, shamanism. Uh, yeah. They're all really also, in that same domain. Also, I want to say about consciousness and conscious mm -hmm. studies, like about how in hypnosis, it seems like we're getting to a deeper level, you know, a deeper consciousness. We're able to tap into, um, you know, source, tap into these different layers of consciousness. If you speak a little bit to like, um, you know, I feel like also in the Indian perspective, we think about the unconscious or the, the kind of force of unconscious um, you know, the psychological perspective of forcing the unconscious of being things that we repress or things we push down, as well as uh, the collective consciousness of the, of the um, as you were talking about. Um, but anything, anything you could talk about, about how all this, I mean, to some extent, it's kind of like a feel-good feeling when we think about transpersonal, but also that the shadow element as well. You know, is what oh, I'm trying yeah. to get at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the difficult aspects of our psyche that we want to confront and, and integrate, yeah. So true, you know, and uh, yeah, that's another thing that, you know, indigenous traditions are really uh, so far ahead of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, this kind of uh, modernist understanding of the mind uh, that even uh, Freud uh, and Jung in particular were critiquing was uh, that, you know, uh, the sum of the surface level of your mind is really all that we are. Uh, and even from a very practical standpoint, uh, Freud and Jung had learned, especially in treating people who had uh, psychosomatic medical conditions, that, that often the nature of these people's problem was not so much with their conscious mind, with their ego, but was much more to do with uh, deeper levels of mind that to that point, Western psychology had really only developed in less than 100 years, and that's even if we're charitable and go back to Abe Faria, who was from Goa, not even a Western person, <laughs> mm. but really the real founder of psychology was uh, Abe Faria from Goa, uh, who established methods of hypnosis that Freud and Jung and uh, their mentor, Jean-Martin Charcot, and uh, France had been uh, teaching them about how to investigate the unconscious. But yeah, if we go back to the real indigenous traditions, yeah, they really uh, understood the deep levels of mind that uh, go beyond uh, the ego and our expectations of ourself and, you know, how you can reliably use them to, as you say, uh, really investigate uh, the shadow uh, nature of mind. And it's very, very practical and, and really quite simple. 
that through methods like meditation, you can come to recover, uh, I guess, uh, one's connection, deeper connection to all the experiences of mind and really look into the magic of how we're creating this uh, attachment to who we think we are, you know, which we would generally call the ego is just basically a collection of what we own about ourselves. But uh, through meditation, all kinds of techniques, not only can we um, get in deeper contact with who we think we are, but also the, the parts that we've uh, totally forgotten about, you know, and other things that we pretty commonly um, prefer not to think about ourselves, you know, it's really one of the things that sometimes uh, becomes so amazing to people when even they just do simple practices like uh, mindfulness meditation is end up uh, thinking about things they don't want to think about. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, they tend to be like really healing. When you start thinking about things you prefer not to think about, it can really result in um, dramatic uh, increases in health. Uh, people who have health problems commonly do have things that are related to that. You know that I uh, just can't accept about themselves. You know the the really big one. You know that most people would know about. You know would be like repressed memories of trauma that they hadn't really uh, fully dealt with. And uh, through dealing with these kinds of experiences that people have had trouble with, a lot of times health problems dramatically improve. People who have headaches, uh, like myself, uh, I got into this field because. Uh, I had headaches, and uh, I had no idea why they were occurring. Um, and I had some childhood trauma that through utilizing uh, methods of hypnosis and uh, uh, also um, meditation, it really helped me to come to terms with some of these issues uh, trauma that I had growing up. I was, a, was actually lynched uh, by some uh, guys in rural Illinois, and I had totally forgotten about the experience. Uh, but then through utilizing uh, meditation and hypnosis, it really came to not only overcome the uh, migraines I was having, but also uh, I came to understand the kind of uh, anxiety I had been repressing through such a horrible experience. Um, and now I'm so much more freedom uh, as a result. That it reminds me of this great quote by uh, Joseph Campbell. Uh, it says, uh, the treasure that you seek is in the cave that you fear to enter. Oh, yeah. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. And it seems like uh, one thing I went to the field with you is like the idea that the structures around which we inhabit create the pathologies that inhab inhabit it. So those societies <laughs> are kind of creating structures that are uh, creating these traumas that like feel like they're like natural consequence of the, the kind of group think that this uh, society brings about. I know how you feel about that, but I feel like, um, you know, yeah. I, like, you know, it's like, it just kind of like de-emphasizes that there's any kind of individual that's creating these storylines rather these storylines are generated by the collective and, you know, and how, and how we kind of negotiate that our, our ability to kind of heal, not just ourselves, but heal the collective as well. That's so true, and uh, it's such a wonderful thing to be able to share with people who've been discouraged for all kinds of reasons. Uh, so, like in my case, uh, you know, I really struggled with a lot of uh, 
what we would generally call in the you know social justice kind of literature uh, internalized oppression and that i grew up in a rural place as a round guy uh, in rural illinois where you know uh, i didn't have uh, any family members around uh, even uh, my father who is uh, sri lankan uh, uh, he left uh, our family when I was pretty young, and so I was just uh, mainly surrounded by uh, white folks who stare at the the crazy brown boy who uh-huh. <laughs> was living in the cornfields with them in the 1970s. And uh, so I, without realizing it, uh, kind of uh, just accepted their viewpoint that there was something wrong with me. You know, everyone's staring at me. Um, and I did not attribute that uh, to being a brown guy at the time. I just thought something was wrong with me and people didn't like me. Uh, even though they would call me uh, racist names, uh, I kept putting it on myself and tried to emphasize uh, crazily that I was half white. Uh, certainly they weren't buying it and let me know. Uh, not everyone. I had some really great friends who helped me through this time. but. It was enough where it, it really drove this into a real illusion of self for me, where I really needed to believe that I was a fully white person. Uh, and that's just not the, the logic by which racism works. You know, I, it, I tried to make it work for me, but it, it wasn't and uh, resulted in all these horrible headaches and uh, panic attacks and social anxiety disorder and uh, PTSD later after I survived a few uh, attacks including one where i was strangled to death by these guys and uh, uh came out of that with a near-death experience after i was rescued at the uh after dying and uh hey, yeah it's very strange uh the way that people normally think about uh the unconscious as something that is personal to a, a person and that their self-structure is personal to a person but all of these things are interaction. Uh, I was thinking about myself in the system and field of racism that was existing in rural Illinois, the place that I lived, and uh, indeed uh, everywhere around the world. Uh, we have all kinds of strange uh, ways of thinking about ourselves depending on the systems uh, that we're living in. Uh, it's just very, even people's uh, basic attitude about who we live in reality is really questioned by the actual. Uh, evidence of how we create the self and how we create the experience of the world, which is one of the things I always love about uh, transpersonal counseling and its methods, is that they also relatively show uh, very easily with the great uh, empirical evidence that uh, our experience of ourself and our experience of uh, common sensory experiences of the world are as illusory and created in the same way that we create dreams. Uh, the real astonishing truth of the nature of our perceptual psychology is that we we experience our daily life the same way we experience our dream life. Uh, we use the same parts of the brain to create dreams that we create our experience of self and reality. Yeah, it definitely seems to be a very deep connection between dreaming and, and reality creation, or the, the way in which we interface the, the actual world. Um, that seems to be pretty clear to many people. Um, and, you know, and where these dreams come from and where, like, what is the generating, you know, a lot, there's a lot of different modalities that I think about dreaming and, you know, in regards to whether it's coded or whether or not it's uh, messages from the spirit world. And where do you fall on that, uh, discussion? Um, 
in regards to dreaming and like uh, how what we can you know remembering dreams of course and what it can benefit how it can benefit us yeah 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 dreams are just a, a such a rich source of one's spiritual life and i think uh as i understand the most successful social justice movements that really get people involved they get people involved in a kind of collective dreaming process even it's often it's absolutely necessary to have that quality because uh the so-called reality that one is experiencing is so oppressive that unless you have a compelling dream you know like martin luther king i no accident he says i have a dream you know uh unless you could you know imagine such a thing it's really hard to get people to take the horrible uh sacrifices that people have often had to uh take on you know tremendous violence that one can experience in social justice movements uh if you don't have a dream in your heart uh with some real transcendent love and some real courage to enact that dream and get involved with imagining people's better nature if they were given a, a choice to do it it's very very hard to do anything uh even to challenge one's own personal uh demons but the demons of the society uh are even more difficult uh i learned this uh really really quickly uh when i was in uh undergraduate school uh i had a bunch of friends who were uh, native americans this is at the university of illinois about 1989 and uh because, you know, I grew up multiracial in rural uh, Illinois, a lot of times uh, people, even uh, Native Americans, uh, kind of assumed I was Native American. <laughs> and so they were going to protest uh, Chief Alinawick, the uh, racist mascot of the University of Illinois uh, football team. And uh, they were actually on their way to protest uh, uh him at uh, his appearance at a homecoming game for the University of Illinois, which is a really, really big experience where thousands of people go to see this game. And, uh, you know, they they would get the chief Illinois person. It was usually actually a white person dressed in, uh, you know, Native American costume of some sort. I don't know where they got it. Um, and he would go out and do all this uh, crazy uh, dances that were supposed to be impressive or something like that, but they weren't based on any Native American tradition at all. Uh, and people would get drunk and, uh, you know, holler and yell while he did these dances and made some kind of, I forget what his chant was or something. Uh, and so these Native Americans asked me to follow along with them, and I was like, all right, what the hell, I'll go. And uh, when I, I got there, you know, I thought, well, What's going to go wrong? You know, we're just in the uh, parking lot. There's about 12 or maybe maybe there was at most 15 of us. Uh, we were just standing there with um, these funny uh, fake uh, uh, Indian masks like they were Halloween costume things. They were really grotesque. And we were just wearing the masks and people had to pass by us as they were entering the stadium. And I thought, this is pretty peaceful and it makes a point. Uh, I'm. I'm fine with what I'm doing, and I love the people that I was protesting with. I protested with them at many other different types of rallies uh, in the past. And I'll be darned if uh, within about five minutes we challenged their dream experience of, uh, you know, what they wanted to experience at the homecoming game and didn't want to be 
presented with the idea that Chief Ilana was some kind of racist mascot. And they got incredibly violent. And the first person who did it was an old white woman. This came right up to all of us and spit through the eye holes in each of our masks. And she just went right down the line, just spitting in all of our eyes. And then uh, one person uh, kind of pushed her back when uh, she came to spit in their eyes. And then the next thing you know, they were all just being uh, assaulted by the huge crowd that was behind and with her. Uh, and I was like, how did this happen? It was just happened just like that. And people are so unconscious in their uh, dreams. You know, it's really uh, intense and crazy how how much uh, people will behave in this very uh, shadow-like and, uh, oh, my gosh, yeah, just almost demonic. It's just crazy. That was the most violent rally that I've ever been been to uh before or since and i've been to a lot of crazy things but uh yeah if you really touch upon uh some of this need that people have sometimes to really celebrate their power and privilege uh and don't want to be confronted by the real dream that you know, people are being oppressed every day for so many different things besides uh race of course there's so many other things going on with social class, uh, so many things involving uh, gender and so many things involving sexual uh, choices and uh, orientation. Uh, so many different aspects of identity and ethnicity are oppressed. And uh, it's really necessary, I think, to have a, a good vision of how we could come to a place, you know, where we actually could love one another and find our shared uh, wisdom and innate uh, compassion uh, and love for a much better world. Uh, or to be honest, I don't think I would ever continue in social justice work after that experience. Oh, <laughs> I just totally thought uh, nothing was going to go wrong. And that easily uh, became a struggle uh, for my life within less than five minutes <laughs> standing in a line. And a woman spitting in everyone's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Man, only imagine. Now, now, I, you thank you for sharing those stories uh, and about Illinois at some of those experiences. I understand you're in Colorado at, at current. Yeah, uh, yeah. And what uh, was there some other things that have brought you there? I know they have a strong Native American uh, population in Colorado as well. And uh, yeah, this is a multi multi uh, pronged question. Um, yeah. Like to hear a little bit about Colorado, but also kind of. You know, if you've had any interactions, I guess, with Native American population there um, and how kind of, you know, their experiences uh, connect to the transpersonal psycho uh, psychology world um, somewhat as well. Yeah, actually, you're very prescient. Uh, I uh, when I got here to Colorado, actually, I very quickly learned about uh, a Native American teacher who I really, really enjoyed studying with him. In fact. Uh, some of the most powerful shadow work I've done uh, is with him. Uh, his name is uh, Gary Duncan, and uh, he's a Native American uh, healer. Uh, is trained uh, in the Navajo uh, tradition. Um, and when I got here, I had so many students uh, from Naropa uh, who had taken uh, some of his traditional trainings on uh, how to do different practices and. Uh, they're a, a two-spirited person. Uh, they 
seem to have sacred elements of both uh, male and uh, female nature, and they receive many uh, trainings uh, and teachings uh, from the Navajo way, uh, from their grandmother, and also from, um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten their, uh, their major uh, mentor. I think his name is uh, Joseph Star Eagle or something like this. And uh, so the, so many of my students at Naropa had been uh, studying with them. Uh, I was like, oh, I got to go uh, yeah. meet with this person. Uh, and especially because uh, earlier when I was in Illinois, uh, I had been uh, teaching at a place called uh, the Adler School of Professional Psychology for, I guess it was about six years or something. And uh, I had... Uh, formed a relationship with a lot of the Native American people through the working at the Native American uh, health center, because uh, I'm often mistaken as Native American in <laughs> Illinois. So I just knew a lot of those folks. And uh, then I decided I wanted to be helpful to their community and used to work at the uh, Native American health center they had in uh, Chicago and uh, got a lot of uh, uh, training from a really wonderful psychologist who's from the Lac de Flambeau uh, tribe. Uh, his name is Dr. Steve Farmland, still a really good friend of mine. Uh, when, <laughs> when I got my uh, my doctorate in clinical psychology, he, he printed out a, a funny uh, uh, fake certificate that said uh, that I had achieved not only uh, my you know official doctorate, but he, he gave me a doctorate of of clinical mischief <laughs> I love it. Nice. and he told me that uh if i had really been native american i probably would have been a hayoka <laughs> a clown <laughs> so i've been really uh always i don't know i've been i guess because partly because i'm mistaken as native american and uh i don't know i think there's something in common at least with the hayoka people uh, in Native American traditions. So I, when I got here, then I started hanging with uh, Garrett Duncan and uh, taking some of his uh, trainings that he would give to people. And uh, yeah, boy, I, I, I have to say that some of the most powerful uh, shadow work that I've done is definitely been uh, with Garrett. You know, and Garrett's not trained as a you know, psychologist, counselor, psychiatrist uh, is trained as a Native American uh, healer and uh, uh, take people on uh, spirit uh, journeys through drumming and sweat lodges and uh, all kinds of different things that teach people to use uh, feathers in uh, particular ways to uh, really work with one's uh, conscious and unconscious mind. Um, and most recently, uh, actually, to be honest, uh, yeah, he uh, he took me on a journey in which uh, he ended up uh, speaking to tons and tons of my uh, people that had been important in my life and even parts of my trauma. Uh, and at the very end of it, uh, he seemed to have healed the very, very last little bit of uh a suffering that I really had from some of those former times. I actually thought it was all gone. Uh, you know, I have done like eight years of psychoanalysis, tons and tons of uh, ego state therapy with hypnosis, uh, so many experiential groups and more than a hundred meditation <laughs> retreats. I thought I was pretty much uh, over some stuff. 
but I'll be darned uh, when he started speaking to uh, my grandmother and my sister, who, um, you know, both uh, been uh, dead for more than 10 years. And we started talking to them. Uh, he found some uh, some shadow that was left and pulled it out of my head. It was a very strange thing. It seemed as if his hand entered my head and uh, pulled out some black stuff. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, what's he going to do with this? And then he threw it to the side. And I'll be darned if it didn't turn immediately into gold dust that just sort of floated everywhere. And I have to tell you, I've not experienced such. uh, I guess I just kind of expected, like many people, that I'm going to have troubles in my love life. It seems to be a normal thing. Uh, but boy, did that really help my love life. <laughs> Thank you, Garrett Duncan. He's <laughs> a very wise, loving person. And I I truly uh, celebrate the way they've. he really keeps their Hayoka traditions uh, going. It's really amazing. The Hayokas are the sacred clowns, you know, that they... Uh, I uh, really do a lot of shadow work with, and he's really uh, very powerful in that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could talk. Uh, maybe now we can just talk a little bit about Naropa, which is uh, the place where we met. I'm doing my uh, master's in clinical mental counseling there, uh, and you're on the faculty there. If you talk a little bit of Naropa and how it situates itself, itself um, lineage, and how it situates itself in the in the in the um, landscape of this uh, of this study. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Naropa is really uh, had been a dream uh, for me to work there for a long time. Uh, So uh, going back to my time when I was living in uh, Chicago, uh, I was very keen, you know, as a a boy uh, who had finally gotten over some of my internalized racism to really reconnect with the Buddhist uh, lineage that I had as a Sri Lankan person. Uh, and uh, I, so I just started to wanting to learn more about Buddhism. And some of the people that I started running into right away, well, a lot of them were Tibetan Buddhists. And so I didn't know uh, really too much at that point uh, as a young man about a lot of the differences between uh, Sri Lankan, Theravadan Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. I figure. Any kind of Buddhism is better than nothing. I better when I hang with these people, and uh, I really liked Tibetan Buddhism a lot. And uh, some of the first people that I met that were into it were students of Trungpa Rinpoche, with the founder of Naropa. So um, I studied, in fact, with one very wonderful man who had even been Trungpa Rinpoche's cook for a time. Uh, he had a PhD in uh, Sanskrit. Uh, in Tibetan from Princeton University, and, and his name was Robin Kornman. And uh, he was the first person um, that I went to study meditation with that I really uh, felt not only had a great uh, intellectual understanding of what meditation was, but also uh, he was a great practitioner. And so for about five years uh, in Milwaukee, I went every uh, Tuesday and sometimes Thursdays to talks that Robin Kornman gave about what he learned about meditation uh, from Trungpa Rinpoche and studying with him, uh, who had already been dead at this point. Uh, this was, um, I guess this is about 1993 when I started studying with Robin. 
and uh, Trunk Rinpoche had died in 87. Um, but uh, Robin really turned me on to meditation, and I started doing uh, retreats with him on weekends. And then uh, my first uh, big meditation retreat, which was uh, f- uh, four weeks long, uh, actually uh, continuing the the trickster thing, uh, <laughs> Robin <laughs> tricked me into going on it. It was really funny. Uh, it was, was about uh, 1996 or something, and you know I'd been telling him how much I really wanted to uh, do a long retreat, but you know I didn't have the money to do it. I was a poor graduate student in clinical psychology at that point, uh, existing mainly on loans uh, and a little bit of part-time work I could scratch in. Uh, and so he he told me, uh, oh Ian, guess what? Uh, you know next month there's going to be a very special a meditation retreat at the Rocky Mountain Dharma Center, which is, a, I think now they call it a Drala, Rocky Mountain Drala Center or something. Um, and uh, <laughs> if you just fill out this application and give me a check for $108, it will cover everything for the month. You know, and I was like, wow, yeah, $108 for a whole month? You know, I could afford that. Uh and I had the summer off from classes, so I was like, oh, I'll definitely do that. And I was about halfway through that retreat uh, when suddenly uh, in meditation it occurred to me. I was like, there was no special deal. <laughs> it was just like I gave him my application. I gave him a check for $108, and and he paid for the rest of it. You know, he, uh, he tricked me into it and out of love paid for it. And uh, such a wonderful man. Uh, and then I got a chance to really learn about, you know, deeper meditation practice. And that's also when I first heard about Naropa University, since, of course, it is uh, close to the, the meditation center, uh, really started as a place. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Dharma Center was really started as a place for practice for things that were going on in the Naropa community. And so I found out all about it, that it was, you know, uh, a place that had been started as a university to really combine the best perspectives of Eastern and Western wisdom on the nature of life and human suffering and to help uh, society really uh, uh, grow and um, deepen in a way in which would uh, transform the world. Um, Back in 1974, you know, and uh, I just had never heard of it really till I got there. And uh, it was such a, a funny feeling because uh, I had just started this graduate program in uh, clinical psychology. Uh, and uh, then I'm hanging at this retreat with all these people who were going to Naropa University getting graduate degrees. And I immediately thought, I was like, oh, I must have made a terrible mistake. I, I should maybe quit uh, this program and go to this one. And I talked to my friend Robert about it, and he said, no, 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 Ian, you should finish your your degree and then later go and teach at Naropa. And so that was in my head all the way from back then. And finally, uh, in 2012, uh, I came to Colorado with the aim of uh, starting at Naropa. And it took a few years uh, to get in, uh, but eventually I did start teaching uh, in seven, or actually coming up on eight years ago. Uh, at Naropa, and uh, it's just been this wonderful place, really. 
Um, I really enjoy students like yourself who are so committed to many, many different aspects of understanding the nature of how we can help people, uh, not just in uh, the way of individually, but what could we do, you know, not only to change the individual reality of peoples, but how could we use these methods also to help people to transform society as well, in particular, uh, learning about the odd ways in which um, the oppressive systems uh, that we face individually really do stem from systemic uh, origins, uh, whether those who started such systems understand how that works or not, it's true. Uh, they definitely, our individual oppression is definitely linked to the systemic oppression that uh, everyone experiences. Even if we seem to have the privilege, yeah, actually, uh, there's some really interesting studies that show that even people who have privilege still suffer from uh, increased anxiety and other stress syndromes as a result of the oppression that they're witnessing uh, and not doing anything about, <laughs> or that it leads them to fear those that they uh, uh, that don't have the same privilege as them. Uh, it's very interesting. No one seems to get away with anything. <laughs> yeah. That's true, that's true. But yeah, I, I really love uh, Naropa for its uh, ability to um, uh, be a place where I am, am able to do a lot of research uh, around uh, the nature of the illusions of self and the illusory nature of the world. And, uh, you know, Trungpa really uh, founded Naropa University as a place where uh, it, you know, the key phrase that uh, people often cite from him is, for east shall meet west and sparks shall fly. Yeah. <laughs> they but really what... wanted to be a place with uh, debate and dialogue around indigenous traditions of wisdom and contemplative psychology, which was really started in Naropa, uh, meditation psychology. and what, Just all kinds of wonderful things. Yeah. One topic that comes up for me when we talk about the meeting of East West and and kind of the um, the uh, kind of meeting ground of the connection between indigenous and and in modern day or contemporary psychologies is the idea of psychopharmaceuticals uh, and mm. the idea that um, you know it seems like in the modern day society, contemporary society, more and more people are being prescribed medications and they're not mm. engaging in the psychic work that's required to couple with that, you know, it feels like we're just prescribing away our futures. You know, I don't know. What is your opinion yeah. on like that kind of movement and how can we return to people actually engaging in the psychic work that's needed that, you know, that, that, that mm -hmm. has to come back and that requires us to do some hard soul searching as a collective, you know, about where we're driving people uh, to yeah. like, just take medication and go to work, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. To take your beds and go to work <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah what's so funny about that is uh uh to me is that's been a funny thing that i've been able to watch like uh, dramatically change uh due to in part the excellent science that some people have been doing the entire time that uh psychiatry became more like a I don't know, an extension of the um, industrial uh, military complex trying yeah. to make people more 
you know, subservient to the state and uh, not just the soldiers, but the citizens as well. Uh, and so uh, some of the very best uh, initial research about um, why psychiatry is so inadequate at addressing uh, depression and anxiety um, came out by one of my very favorite mentors and uh, colleagues in the hypnosis world, uh, Irving Kirsch. Uh, Irving Kirsch is a professor at Harvard. Uh, he started his this research I'm about to tell you about in uh, at the University of Connecticut. And he simply looked at um, the original trials that um, I forget who the makers of Prozac are, uh, but he looked at their initial trial data and he was just kind of curious to look at um, the trial data to see, you know, how effective did they really think Prozac was. Uh, and when he looked at the trial data, not only did he uh, discover that it wasn't really that effective in uh, treating uh, depression, uh, but that actually the placebo effect in that seemed to be stronger than the medication effect by uh, large magnitude. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, we kept prescribing it. And uh, I think this original research came out like, I think it was like 1990 or something, maybe a, a little earlier, a little after that, but it was around that period of 1990. And he was immediately castigated by the entire psychiatric community for suggesting that most of these medications, and in particular Prozac, uh, had a, a, a ginormous placebo effect. And, it, and if at the same time, they also caused some real real physiological side effects, so to speak, though I don't wish to actually assert that the placebo effect is not real by inference there, because actually the placebo effect is a very ethical thing to use if you use it in ethical ways. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, the research that their own data showed uh, was that you know, particular for the treatment of depression and anxiety, most of these agents were not uh, doing too much other than causing people sexual side effects. Like, uh, I don't know uh, how much people have looked into this, but uh, it commonly people on um, all different forms of uh, anti-depression and anxiety agents can experience uh, terrible uh, problems with uh, losing their uh, desire for sexuality. Some even lose their sexual uh, performance, the uh, ability to become uh, orgastic, uh, ability to achieve an erection. All of these things can be interfered with uh, by medications at times. And um, so his research really led to what we're seeing now, uh, which is a, a complete challenge of whether uh, actually, <laughs> depression has anything to do with the serotonin deficiency. There's been some really great research more recently that has totally challenged this uh, whole hypothesis that depression has something to do with the, the depletion of serotonin in the brain. And scientifically, this is not thought to be a tenable hypothesis anymore and yet people are still getting the medications <laughs> and just like uh uh irving Kerr said you know if there isn't a, a real scientific hypothesis supporting this maybe it's just like irving Kerr said it's more 
like a placebo. And, you know, uh, no doubt, uh, placebos do help people. However, um, could psychiatry be utilized in a more empowering way? Uh, could psychiatry be used in a way that empowers people to make deep discoveries into the nature of their mind, uh, utilizing other agents, like uh, even things that are legal, like uh, ketamine or uh, the all the trials with MDMA for PTSD, all the trials uh, with uh, psilocybin, you know, uh, could psychiatry be different? Hell yes. It, it could be just like it was with Freud, where they used transpersonal methods like hypnosis and the original free recall, which is kind of like meditation, uh, to help people to um, really look into the deeper aspects of themselves that might be unconscious and become something that could be much more healing. You know, you're doing work with uh with uh counseling paired with these medicines and psychiatry could return to its roots as an actual healing relationship as well as utilizing <laughs> medicines and not just giving people placebos and say uh, take two of these and uh, go back to work before you think of anything else <laughs> yeah no, totally totally and i think that when you're bringing up my next question is about or our next topic is going to be about, you know, like all these alternative uh, modalities that are coming up in regards to ketamine and, and psychedelics and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and how and how they um, can assist in a more in a in a different way to psychopharmaceuticals to, to actually facilitate the journey, um, yeah. the psychic journey rather than just subduing symptoms. That's how yeah. I think they distinguish themselves because you actually go on a little bit of a, a psychic journey when you're, mm -hmm. for the most part, um, rather than, and it's facilitated by people who are interested in the psychic journey to see what yeah. is the unconscious trying to tell you? Um, yeah. What is what are these forces, what are these energies trying to impel you to become or be uh, rather than just trying to quiet down the symptoms so that then you can perform, per se? Um, yeah. Yeah. And let psychiatry return to its real roots in psychotherapy. Yeah. I mean, that was the really most important thing, I think. When I think of Freud's work in particular, uh, I think it was that uh, what people said about him. He was the talking cure. You know, he had a way of really trying to, you know, with all, of course, the cultural <laughs> limitations that Freud had, particularly regarding uh, gender. Uh, he wasn't particularly fond of indigenous religions either, by the way, uh, and could come off as fairly racist, actually. Um, but at the same time, uh, he was a person that really got people to think more about doing psychotherapy with people who had psychiatric problems and to talk to people about their problems and to use methods to transform their consciousness, uh, like hypnosis, which he started with and then ended up with uh, free recall, which is a bit more like meditation. Um, uh, but yeah, could psychiatry do that? And uh, when I grew up, uh, I had the great fortune to uh, have a very mischievous mind, <laughs> as I mentioned a few times. And uh, my father was a psychologist. And so I was aware that at one point, 
because uh, my dad had this book in his library that used to fascinate me. It was uh, entitled uh, uh, LSD, uh, Marijuana, and uh, and Yoga. It was written by a friend of his who I later met named uh, Ted Barber. And Ted Barber was claiming that LSD was this... Uh, I have to remember, this is about 1980 that I saw this you know challenging book you know, title uh it, you know in this book he went over all of the evidence the early evidence from the 1950s and uh, 1960s until when uh LSD had been made illegal uh not just um you know uh it was just made illegal you couldn't even do psychotherapy research on it anymore and so that kind of ended that research for quite a while except in some areas that kept it going of course um and so when I read that book, uh, I was astounded because everything I'd ever heard about LSD was, oh, it's like acid. That's going to like uh, dissolve your brain, Ian. You don't want to do that. And I, I really believed that. Uh, but then after I read that book and read that actually there was a time when this was actually producing tremendous results in veterans in particular at the Manager Institute, and I read some other books as well after uh, following up on uh, Ted Barber's book. Uh, I thought, my goodness, you know, this really could be something that would be amazing in helping people. And I guess I was thinking about my own struggles unconsciously, really, and kept thinking, boy, someday I'd really like to maybe learn some more about this. And then a small miracle happened, uh, which was, even though I lived in rural Illinois, uh, for some reason, to this day, I don't know why, uh, Timothy Leary came to a local community college oh, wow. to give a talk, uh, actually, not on LSD psychotherapy, but on uh, a strange computer program that he was uh, <laughs> collaborating with people on. Um, but uh, I went uh, to see that talk, and then uh, one thing led to another. A few years later, I had my first experience of lsd with tim leary actually uh, <laughs> and uh it was so funny uh i hadn't even intended for it to happen just a, a friend uh, had uh, acquired some lsd from uh, a grateful dead show and uh uh you know we decided to take it and i i went to a party uh, after we set some intentions and lo and behold there was timothy leary sitting on the couch and uh <laughs> just as my uh, acid had kicked in and I couldn't believe it was him. So I just like walked up to him and I go, Hey, I, you're, you're Tim Leary. And he goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're Tim Leary. <laughs> you're Tim Leary. And I was like, no, no, you're Tim Leary. Goes, no, 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 you're Tim Leary. <laughs> no, you're Tim Leary. No, you're Tim Leary. And it was going on back and forth, you know, for like five minutes, you know, like, <laughs> and it suddenly it occurred to me, I was like, oh, he's on acid too. <laughs> 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 but uh, it was so wonderful. Uh, and that trip, uh, I really learned so much about how I had been creating my experience of self as a, trying to desperately not see myself as a brown person, uh, it was causing me a tremendous amount of anxiety. Uh, and even I'd been repressing the anxiety for myself. I just thought something was wrong with my brain in a fairly primitive way without trying to think of it as an anxiety disorder. And I immediately went into uh, therapy. 
uh, and I had a great humanistic uh, uh, client-centered uh, therapist. Uh, it really helped me a lot to really come to terms with who I was. And I continued using medicines, uh, even though I was not able to do that with my therapist, I would bring a lot of the insights I was having with, uh, in particular with LSD uh, to my therapy sessions. And I had a great uh, psychologist who is helping me and integrate these things. And uh, this really cemented in my mind that, boy, psychiatry could really be a different thing. Really, really a different yeah. thing. No, totally, totally. Thank and you. I Thank started you. to meet these people who were doing these things. And, uh, you know, here in, in Denver and in Boulder, uh, we have just really, really great psychiatrists and uh, counselors and yeah. psychologists who are able even legally to do ketamine work. And I have just seen in this last 10 years such a growth in a return to the real approach that I think psychiatry should be taking, combining their methods with psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, proud well, let me just cut in there. Let me cut in there one second. This is about a minute or two left. So those are oh, my yeah. listeners that you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio. This is the Truth to Power show. Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote made literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So every dollar helps us to stay on air, continue to stay on air, and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 profit organization, so our contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at RichardFulcan.org slash donate. If you're an Amazon shopper, please consider uh, donating in a way that costs nothing to you. Go to RichardFulcan.com slash Amazon and register RichardFulcan as your Amazon small charity. If you're listening to this interview um, in front of your computer, Please fill yourself up by dialing a mobile app, so iPhone or Android, go on the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter, readyfilling.org slash newsletter. So thanks so much, Dr. Ian. So um, it's been really great having you and talking a little bit about transpersonal and the different modalities and, and all this kind of stuff that we can go on and on, but thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much for having me, VJ, and thank you for your wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. This is a, this is Scott's last show, and uh, we have two more episodes uh, live broadcasting this month, and the twenty eighth we'll be uh, doing a pre record, uh, and then ending the show for the for this iteration. So I hope everyone will tune in for the rest of the month. The final four episodes, final four episodes, and we want to you know throw out there that people can call in during those uh, last couple episodes. We want we want to engage with some of the listeners uh, before uh, before the show ends. Yeah, definitely. In the next two episodes, we're having that opportunity, and I'll I'll, I'll call out the the number. Thanks so much. <laughs>